0: This is episode 59 of the CB Northwest and Camp Tadmor events podcast. We're continuing with the 2010 Annual Enrichment Conference, Behold the Church, Gospel Communities on Mission. This is session four, Wednesday morning, with Mark Hafner. Being uh, 51 years old and being one of the older people in this room, uh, I'm looking forward to our time to kind of journey together uh, what we've been trying to communicate uh, as it relates to gospel communities on mission. If you'll think about our times together, we started by trying to create a framework of affirmation as it relates to the gospel, as it relates to the church, and as it relates to our mission. In other words, there are those normative statements from the scripture that are a framework from which... We want to build flesh around that framework. And Jeff has uh, done a wonderful job of of building flesh around those affirmations from the Scripture as to what does it mean to be uh, those who embrace the gospel? What does it mean to pledge our allegiance to the gospel of Jesus Christ? And, And so we realize we pledge our allegiance to Christ himself. We pledge our allegiance to the gospel itself, And we pledge our allegiance to the mission that God has sent us on. As we understand the normatives from Scripture, this is what the Bible says as it relates to the gospel. This is what the Bible says as it relates to who Jesus Christ is in building his church. This is what the, the Bible says the mission of the church is to be. When we come to terms with those normative statements, then we can ask the big question, does my church and does our fellowship of churches look anything like what the Bible says we're to look like? In other words, if we're going to evaluate who we are, we must evaluate ourselves on a standard, that makes sense. And the standard that makes sense is the word of God. So as we talk about redemptive communities, as we talk about uh, taking the gospel into our world, even as we've spent time here together, uh, my wife and I and our children, we've got, I don't know, we've got six of our seven kids are here. Um, and uh, so when we're in a hotel room, it's uh, It's a free-for-all just for a bed, but uh, uh, anyway, we are on our second, this is our second night here and we're in our second bed, so we are going to find one that works here before we're out of here, but uh, we've got one kid who's sick and he's coughing in one room and we've got another kid who doesn't want to sleep anywhere but with the brother who's coffin? and and so you know what it's like right and so we're on mission and we're in community we're um uh we're we're trying to evaluate our circumstances and and as we were sitting there talking one of my daughters you know we've got two that are juniors in high school so they know everything and um uh they said you know i think we're hypocrites and i said oh great okay um yeah, you know that, that community stuff that Jeff's been talking about? I don't think we live that way. And I'm going, well, it's your mother's fault, okay? <laughs> and so um, talk to your mom, okay? And, and so then, you know, we send them to bed. So then my wife and I, we have this conversation about, you know, well, what does it mean for us? What does it mean for the Hafner family to be uh, in community? What does it mean for us to be, a family who is uh, living out that which Jeff put forth that is causing credible problems in my house. (laughs) And, um, um, you know, am I hypocritical? Is my family hypocritical? In other words, how do you evaluate it? But if you don't evaluate it, you see, then you can't make any kind of adjustments, can you? Now, you know, I'm here to say, no, we're perfect family. There is no hypocrisy at our house, and and we do this perfectly. Absolutely not. Every day is a journey of decision-making that forces us to have to discern how do we live the gospel as Hafners, But we're not just Hafners. How do we live the gospel as a part of... Cornerstone Christian Fellowship in John Day, Oregon, as an elder in the church. Um, you know, how do we live the gospel as as people who live on a ranch in Prairie City, Oregon, and, and our next neighbors two miles away? Uh, you know, how, how do we live this as people who uh, are responsible for uh, interacting with 256 churches now in four states, and do you know what I'm saying? This is this is something that you've got to deal with personally, you and your wife and your kids and your home and your family. What does it mean for you to be on mission? What does it mean for you as a family to live in biblical community? Uh, What does it mean for, for you? Then what does it mean for your church? And then what does it mean for our churches? One of our desires at CB Northwest in the coming through the identity process was simply to try to say, you know what? God, if you would be so gracious to us, as conservative Baptists here in the Northwest, if you could help us to become incredibly healthy, so that out of our health we might just be a blessing to the greater evangelical community. In other words, to, to not so that we could say, "Look at us! Aren't we great? And and we've got it figured out." But to say, "No, this is just what health looks like." And and come and be healthy with us. Come and. Come and let's, let's see the body of Christ. It's so much bigger than us, right? We understand that, don't we? Uh, the body of Christ is so much bigger than who we are as, as, as conservative Baptists, but yet we're a part of the body of Christ. And so we want to be incredibly healthy. This morning, as we try to process what does it mean to go from this skeleton of what is gospel, what is church, and, and what is mission to putting flesh on that. And that is, what does it mean to to live in, in redemptive community? And what does it li- mean to live as missional communities? And, and what does it mean for us to have expressions of the gospel that go forth from our home and from our church And into our community. As we talk about that and we try to wrestle with that as the local church, then we have to step back and we have to say, but it's not just my home and it's not just my church, but it's we, the churches of the body of Christ, that that we're a part of a a family uh, of CB churches, but the CB family is a part of an evangelical community, the body of Christ, that goes far bigger and far greater and spans the whole globe. And so as we back up and we say okay what are the ramifications what are the ramifications for this teaching as we step back and we look at the covenant community not just our community not just our church what what does the bible have for us so this morning i want to look at two texts and try to draw some conclusions Uh, before we head to our seminar time. And the first text that I would like you to turn with me uh, with me to is in the book of Hebrews, and it's in the 10th chapter. The book of Hebrews is always a a, a, a fascinating book for me because, first of all, we really don't know who wrote it. We don't know if Paul wrote it or if Luke wrote it or Barnabas wrote it. Um, we, We don't know whether it was written in Italy uh, to go out of Italy to the to the greater Asian world and to the churches, or whether it was written outside of Italy and it was coming back into Rome, uh, we're not sure. Uh, a number of things. So there's all of these questions that have been debated about who who is the author and and to whom was it written. But when you step back and you look at the text, what you realize is is that it's a book that celebrates the supremacy of Christ. It puts Christ right at the focal point of the book. Christ is the big idea in the book. And, and when you come to terms with what Christ, uh, what the book says about Christ, all of a sudden you realize that, that it has this flow of the of the, the the grand sweep of the will of god moving out of all that we see in the in the the law and the prophets and now it moves into um the new covenant in christ jesus and so we see the imagery of the old uh, uh system of uh, of of uh, atonement for sin and and into the into the person of Jesus who is our atoning work and and it's this beautiful picture of of moving from Israel and how Israel interacted with God before Christ and and how the Church of the Living God now interacts with um, with God after Christ fulfillment of. Um, of, of God's desire for our redemption through His death, burial, and resurrection, and as we look at the book, what we realize is is that the book talks to Israel, and then it talks to the church, and all of a sudden we realize that that, that sometimes is the book talking to me. Is it written to individuals? Is the book talking to the church? i.e. a church in Rome or, or a church in Ephesus or a, a, a church somewhere uh, throughout Asia Minor? Or is it talking to all of God's church? Who was it written to? When you come to chapter 10 in the book of, of Hebrews, all of a sudden you have this, this wonderful uh, description of Christ's sacrifice, and it's a sacrifice once for all. And if you look at it with me, uh, beginning there at verse 7, he says, Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the books. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifice and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. So, so here he's, he's, he's taking us back to that, that, uh, uh, that process in the tabernacle for um, the covering of sin. Verse 9, then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. Notice this theme of of Jesus doing the will of the Father. I'm, I'm doing your will. Over and over again in the text, it says that. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first order to establish the second. Verse 10, and by that will, we have been sanctified to the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take sins away. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, uh, waiting from the time until the enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And so we see this plurality of expression where Jesus is going to satisfy for those. And so then you have to go back and you have to say, who is this plurality? Who are the those that he's talking about? And so he goes forth in verse 16 and he says, this is the covenant that I have made with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and on their minds. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to apply that to me. Amen? I mean, I'm pretty jazzed about the fact that Jesus did that, okay? And it has an application to Mark Hafner this morning, okay? And it has an application to you. But you know what? It's not just for me, is it? It's also for us, is it not? And it's for your church. And it's for every Christian and every church that has ever gone forth, right? Right? And so now all of a sudden what we see is is that which is applied to me is applied to us, which is applied to the whole church of the living God. And so now he comes and he says, therefore, brothers, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, do you have confidence? Does your church have confidence? Does the churches have confidence? Brothers, therefore, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, do I get to go into the holy place by the blood of Jesus? Amen. Do we get to go there? Amen. Do our churches get to go there? Amen. We have this confidence that we get to enter into this holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and a living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. What does that sound like? Sounds like bread of life to me. The blood and the flesh. The bread of life. Who is the bread of life? The one sent from heaven. What happens when the bread of life comes? The Father will draw to the bread of life those who will participate in the work of the bread of life so that we might have redemption. What is this? by a new and a living way that he opened up through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. As I was processing and studying through this passage of Scripture, I was I was caught off guard because all of a sudden, I realized that the picture that is here is universal. In other words, the whole church of the living God for all ages gets to enter in. All of us, the whole body of Christ gets to enter in. It's a, it's a universal picture of the sweep of the redemptive power of the living God. It is an incredible universal picture of God's salvific strength. And yet, he uses intimate and personal language. Let us draw near. Let us draw near. How? With a a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. As I was thinking about this, I realized that, you know, that describes me in my sinful condition, that um, that I need to, to draw near because I need God to be the one to take care of those things in my life. But, you know, in my role in working with churches, and you kind of heard testimony of it today by, by Dave's testimony as he was supposed to be doing budget, but he was eating up our time. Um, the um, The... Just kidding, Dave. <laughs> um, the, uh, as you think about the testimony, you know, this doesn't just happen in individuals' lives. It happens in the lives of churches. Have you ever seen church get a little bit nasty? Any of you ever been in one of those? You know? And yet what we realize is, is that it's not just churches sometimes that get nasty. There can also be sometimes where churches can get nasty. And so all of a sudden, what we realize is what happens in the in the in, in the micro happens in the macro. That that it's not just us, but me, but it's us and it's them, right? And so here's this language: let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with the pure water. I need to be. That kind of a person. But my church needs to be that kind of a church. And you know what? We need to be that way as the churches of the living God. You you, you see what I'm saying? You following me here? Just humor me and go like that. So, you know, at least I feel like somebody's following. Okay, look at verse 23. Let us then, in light of that, hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who is promised is faithful. He's not only faithful to me, but he's faithful to us. To my church. He's faithful to you, the church is. In other words, this, this word picture is a word picture that doesn't just happen for the individual. It happens for the church, and it happens for the churches. So then he moves down into verse 24, and he says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works. Now, you got to stop there for just a second, because you and I understand as we process through the book of Hebrews that the context of love is simply the context of Christ. Because the book is about the exaltation of Christ. The book is about the supremacy of Christ. So, so if you want to understand love, you look at who? You look at Jesus, right? Right? And so as I look at Jesus in the book of Hebrews, and then the, Bible, and the book of Hebrews tells me I'm going to stir one another on up to, to love, what does that mean? I'm going I'm to embrace the great commandment. I'm going to embrace what it means to love God, to love others, uh, to love myself. And, and so all of a sudden, there is no greater statement of love than the great commandment because the great commandment puts us in right relationship to God and to others. Amen? You follow so I'm going I'm to stir up one another to get next to Jesus, to be like Jesus, to walk with Jesus, because it's, it, it's about him. And, there, and, and so if, if I can't have a Jesus conversation in my home, then I'm not stirring up those in my home to love. If, if in my church we're not having a Jesus conversation, then I, I'm not stirring people up to love in the church. If we as the churches... Are not stirring one another up to have a Jesus conversation, then we're not spurring one another on to love and good deeds. We also understand that, as you look at this text, that that Jesus came on mission, and and so he was all about disciple making, and and so we see that we're to stir one another up to love and to to good deeds. Well, I need to I need to be about helping disciple my kids. And one of the things that uh, is important to me as a dad at different stages in my children's life is to sit down with them and say, what do you look like in four years if you're a healthy follower of Jesus Christ? You know, so when my kids graduate from high school, you know, I want to sit down and say, okay, what do you look like in four years as a healthy you in four years? Because what I want my children to do is I want to, to have them think about what does a healthy me look like in four years? Because if they don't understand what a healthy them looks like in four years, they're not going to set a pathway towards that. And so when I sit down and say, what is a description of a discipled kid, you see, there's going to be a pathway towards that because I want to stir up in them. I want to spur them on uh, to be all that they can be in relationship to who God has made them. But it's true of the elders that I serve with as well, amen? In other words, I want to be a person who says to one of the the elders that I work with, what do you look like when you're healthy? What what do you look like when you're hitting on all cylinders as an elder or as a pastor? What does a healthy you look like? And then the follow-up question is, what's keeping you from being that guy, right? But then the question is, is, what does a healthy church look like? What is a description of your church when it's hitting on all cylinders? In other words, when the Spirit of God, through the power of God, is living through your church, what does it look like? Can you describe it? If you can describe it, then you can begin to set direction towards it. So Jeff gave you some practical examples last night. Go with your people and see whether they can actually tell the gospel to somebody. If they can't, then the chances are you probably know where you need to work. You you probably need to know how to work at helping them do that, right? And so all of a sudden what we begin to realize is is that, that the Bible is telling us that there is this activity of description that takes place by being able to analyze or evaluate the who I am in the now in light of what I should be in the future. In other words, where are we going? And so what the writer of Hebrews says is we need to spur one another on or stir one another on to love and good deeds. I like the, I like the word spur better than stir. Okay, Janelle doesn't let me in the kitchen a lot uh, because my stirring abilities are not all that good. You know, Have you ever seen a, a skilled person with a whip? You know, I'm not talking about like a paddle, but I, you know what I'm talking about—one of those things in a bowl, whisk. It's not a whip; it's a whisk. Okay. <laughs> I was just checking to see if you knew that. Okay. And when when you're when you're whisking, okay. Now you know why I'm, why I'm not in the kitchen. Okay. Whenever I get the whisk. Uh, whatever I'm whisking ends up on the ceiling, okay, on the floor. I don't see how you can do it that fast and keep it in the bowl, you say. But I understand spurs, okay? Uh Out on our ranch out in Eastern Oregon, you know, we have two kinds of horses. We have saddle horses. And saddle horses are the ones that we use to do the work on, on the ranch. In fact, my pastor Levi, where are you, Levi? Yeah, stand up, Levi. Now, I just want to ask you does that look like a cowboy to you? <laughs> okay. If you want to see that as a cowboy, Fox News. Is it on YouTube now? Where is it, <laughs> Levi? <laughs> There's a picture of Levi at the white supremacist task force meeting in John Day, and uh, uh, he's leaning up against the wall with his uh, full cowboy. Uh, garb on because he had went on his first cattle drive. Uh, Quite an experience, wasn't it? And they actually let you wear spurs, right? No, I didn't see. Okay, there we go. In other words, if you're a cowboy and you know how to use your spurs and you're riding a good saddle horse, when you run those spurs up along the flank of that horse, that horse lifts up its head and it says, what do you want? How can I serve you at this moment? You throw that same saddle on one of those green horses at the ranch, and you run your spurs up the flank of that horse, it does not lift up its head and say, how can I serve you? It says, I'm going to throw you on your head, and I'm going to stomp right in the middle of you until I've killed you. Now, what's the difference? What's the difference? Well, the difference is really simple, and that is that On that saddle horse, there has been a training that has built a relationship of trust that says together we're going to get something done. That this is a profitable relationship that we are entering into together and it's an important relationship because without this relationship, we can't get the job done. But with a green horse, there is no relationship. It doesn't care about the job because it is deathly afraid of you and what you might do to it. And so anything that you bring its way is going to cause it fear and alarm, and it is going to try to avoid you. What's the passage say? Let us consider one another. Why is it that we try to pray for every pastor in every church once a week? It's because we believe it's our responsibility to consider you, to think about you, as we consider you, then we want to pray for you. Why do we want to pray for you? Because we want that which comes from you to represent Jesus, love. That what comes from you impacts your communities with the gospel, good works. Because there is no greater work in the Bible than to reproduce ourselves in the lives of others through biblical disciple-making. But you see, it's not just enough for Mark Hafner and Mark Hafner's family to love one another and to make disciples. It is that which my church is commissioned to do and to be. But it's not just enough for our church, it's also your church and our is. In other words, this is a declaration of, Of universality it is a principle that happens on the micro as well as on the macro so how does the writer uh, bring this thought to conclusion but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching why because some people are in the habit of not gathering together for the purpose of encouragement for the purpose of coming together In other words, God intends for not only my family to come together so we can talk about being hypocrites, and what does that mean, and how do we adjust it so that that's not who we are, but it also says that we need to come together in light of who we are as a local church, and, and the elders need to come together, and they need to talk about what does it mean for us to lead this fellowship in such a way that we represent the love of Christ and the work of Christ in and through our church. But it's more than that, because we're on mission together as the body of Christ, and so we need to gather together, we need to come together, for the express purpose of of helping one another to go deeper in our love for God, deeper in our expressions of how we relate to Jesus and how Jesus relates to us, and then to figure out how is it that we together might do good works. Now, there are some categories in the Bible that make this level of fellowship absolutely necessary. One of those levels is the idea that there is a world bigger than us that needs Jesus. And how are we together going to strategize to reach it through the planning of churches? In other words, you may not need another church in your town because your town has 12 people in it and you have 14 in your church. And another Baptist church there probably wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. But there are places where they need churches. One of the great stories is the church in Alturas called us and said, you know, I don't think we need another church in Alturas, but we want to be a part of church planning. And so they raised resources and said, would you help us figure out where to direct these resources to those places and those people who are planting churches? What a wonderful vision of covenant community that extends beyond the borders of Alturas, California. And we don't even claim them as a part of our association, even though they are. You don't see... You know, CB, uh, Oregon, Idaho, Washington, and one church in Northern California, okay? And, and, and yet, here they are trying to help our churches plant churches around the Northwest. Um, when the Blue Mountain Boys, the Blue Mountain Association gets together, are there any more churches that need to be planted in the Blue Mountains, guys? Yeah, I think so. Who's going to do that? You see, who's going to strategize to make that happen? Where's the conversation going to take place? Where is the prayer going to take place if they don't gather themselves together for the purpose of trying to discern the mind of Christ as to where churches need to be planted in the Blue Mountains? Any churches need to be planted up in, in, in Washington? Or are you guys all okay? Yeah? What about Idaho? You see, who's going to strategize to discern the mind of Christ as to where this should happen? What churches are going to feel the call of God to say, you know what, that's our area, and we're going to take it, and we want your help? In in other words, where does that conversation take place? Uh, If I understand this passage, it says, and let us consider one another in order that we may spur one another on to love and good deeds. And then it says, not neglecting, to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day draw near. So one of those categories that makes a gathering like this important is that we see that there is still areas where the church of the living God needs to be planted. It needs to be gone forth. But there's another reason for our coming together. If you'll turn back with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 15. In Acts chapter 15, we have an incredible story of what is called the Jerusalem Council. It's a beautiful picture of the body of Christ working for another reason, and that is to find their common ground doctrinally, for the sake of unity of doctrine, for the sake of the advancement of the gospel with clarity. So here you have the church in Antioch, and the church in Antioch is kicking it out of the park. The church in Antioch is on mission, and they are seeing people come to know Jesus Christ in ways that is incredible. And they've got these two guys that are a part of that, Paul and Barnabas, and a part of their strategy is to to discern before the Lord, to send Paul and Barnabas out. And Paul and Barnabas go out on their missionary journeys. And after that first missionary journey, they come back to Antioch. And when they get back to Antioch, all of a sudden they realize that there are these guys who came down from Judea. And when they came down from Judea, they started teaching the Gentiles that you have to be circumcised and you have to follow the law of Moses to be saved. Now, notice what the text says. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And so Paul and Barnabas said, Oh, okay. I'm glad you told us that. I think we'll start doing that, right? Is that what the text says? No. Look at what the text says. It says and after Paul and Barnabas had no small. Don't you like that? That's called understatement. Par excellent. You see, no small dissension and debate. In other words, they got after it. And so these guys who came down and started teaching this stuff, and Paul and Barnabas had no small debate. There was a dissension. What was the dissension? It was about doctrine. What was the doctrine? The doctrine of salvation. How are we saved? And so this discussion, this debate, no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem and uh, to the apostles and the elders about this question. Now this is an interesting text because it was just in chapter 11 that you had the word elders for the first time put forth. So here you've got all these rookie leaders. You've got these brand new elders, right? And you've got these apostles, and now, these apostles and these elders in Jerusalem are going to be the ones who are going to discern the mind of God on this doctrinal issue so that the church might find the sideboards in which it's going to run doctrinally so that they can keep on focus, they can keep on mission. Because this doctrinal issue, if it's not handled correctly, will get them off mission. And once they get off mission, then they start having all kinds of problems. And so they go to Jerusalem for the purpose of, of discerning this issue, for finding the mind of Christ, verse 3. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, uh, describing in detail the conversions of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. I think it's, a, it's an incredible thought. So here are these guys that come from Judea. They teach this teaching. You have to be circumcised. Paul and Barnabas have this debate with them. The church in Antioch says, okay, we're going to send all of you guys to Jerusalem to the elders and the apostles to get this worked out. So these guys are traveling down together, okay? They're probably debating the whole way, okay? But at every city, what do Paul and Barnabas do? They talk about what God's done amongst the Gentiles, okay? So Paul's talking about how all these Gentiles are getting saved, and these guys have this doctrine saying, well, they're not circumcised, so I don't really know if they're saved. You know, what do you think? You think they're saved? I don't think they're saved. And, and so you have the testimony of Paul and Barnabas all the way down, and people are, are receiving it with joy. Verse 4, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, the apostles, and the elders. Notice the, the combination of apostles and elders over and over again in this text. And they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees arose and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the laws of Moses. Now, there there is a biblical precedent for what they're saying if you go back to the book of Genesis, because to be a part of the, the nation of Israel, they needed to be circumcised. So it's not like they don't have some theological ground for what they're saying, but they miss something. And so now they're having this discussion, and it says in verse 6, and the apostles and the elders were, um, were, were gathered together to consider this matter. Then notice what it says, and after they had, there had been much debate. Now what do you think's going on here? Well, um, uh, it's important to know that it wasn't it's not a debate in the sense of just an argument, it's a bringing the text. And one of the principles that we see here is that when we come together, we, it's okay to debate, but you got to debate open Bible. One of the things that bothers me to no end when I go into your churches and you're in trouble and you want to put forth your opinions and you want to you give these incredible statements about what is and what should be and why it's right, but you forget to do what? open your Bible. In other words, when we debate, we debate how? Open Bible, because this is our sole authority for faith and practice. This is what is the final arbitrator. This is where we get our clues for how we make the decisions. Whether we like it or not, it's what this says, right? So now all of a sudden, they're having this debate. You can imagine they're just ripping up the Septuagint. You got guys saying, well, look at what it says here in Genesis. And then they're saying, well, look at what it says here in Jeremiah. Well, look at what Isaiah said. Look at all of this thing. So there was this debate, open Bible. Then Peter stands up, an apostle. Peter stood up and he said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you by the mouth of the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Now what's important about what was just said here? Was it because it was Peter This is what I think is so incredible about this task. You've got to remember that we don't have the New Testament sitting in front of them, do we? We've got the Old Testament and we've got the apostles. Who are the apostles? They're the ones who walked with Jesus. They're the ones who heard from Jesus and they're the ones who were appointed by Jesus. So they have apostolic authority. So all of a sudden, what Peter is doing is Peter is God's apostolic word being given voice. So Peter is representing the mind of God by way of that which the Old Testament, which they have just debated, is leading to and bearing witness to the work of God. And so you have the voice of God being put forth with apostolic authority by Peter. It's an incredible picture. And all the assembly fell silent. And then they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. In other words, Peter is saying, this is the way people get saved. And now Paul and Barnabas are saying, yep, and that's exactly what happened. This is what God said would happen. Peter's voice. This is what took place. Paul and Barnabas's voice. So then you get another voice. James. Look what James says. James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles. So what is James doing? affirming the apostolic voice of Peter. Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, ah, now the debate, what Paul, what Peter said, what the word said, the Old Testament, that which they just got done debating, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should, and I just want to stop there because with what voice is he speaking? So now all of a sudden you have the word of God, Old Testament, debated. You have the apostolic voice of God through Peter. And now you have the prophetic voice of James declaring this is how all of this should be understood. So here is the solution. Here is the prophetic voice. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them. Now, this is crazy. How did they get here? Look at what it says. It says, but we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been struggled, strangled, it's a struggle too, but it has been strangled um, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is, um, read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So what's going on here? You got this debate. You got this apostolic declaration. you got this testimony of Paul and Barnabas. You have this prophetic voice of James, and that prophetic voice of James brings to conclusion that which is necessary to bring this issue to conclusion so they have a doctrinal track to run on. And he finds with them the mind of Christ. What does he do in the text? He says, you know what? We're not going to burden them with this act of circumcision. But we are going to burden them with this. Be gracious to how you relate to your Jewish brothers. Ah, grace and truth. Grace and truth. The truth is that there is nothing that can be added to your salvation by the acts of men. Jesus Christ is sufficient once for all. But when you come together to relate, you need to abstain from foods that have been offered to idols. You need to be careful to not participate in immorality. You need to not participate in that which has been strangled or or partake of the blood. Why? Because it's offensive. It's offensive. Be gracious in your dealings with one another. And the Gentile Christians need to be careful in their newfound liberty that they don't take their liberty to an extreme where it becomes offensive to those who cannot walk where they walk because of who they are as Jewish Christians. And it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church. So not only did what James said say make sense to the apostles and to the elders, but the whole church embraced it. To choose men from among them and to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas and Barsabbas and Cilicius leading men among the brothers with the following letter. And then the letter goes forth and I'll let you read that for yourself. What's the point? What's the point? There is a part of church that is much bigger than just yours and my local expression. And it is that level that forces us to embrace what are the sideboards of doctrine that are going to guide us so that we might stay on mission. And where is it that the mission should take us so that we might be effective in that which God has called us to do and to be? When you gather together in your association meetings, what's the purpose? If it's not to affirm and to maintain the sideboards of our doctrinal integrity so that we might be on mission, then there really is no reason for which I can think of for us to gather other than maybe some encouragement. But if when we gather, we gather with the mindset that we are preparing ourselves for that which is going to come, the next hill that's going to be taken, the next place where the gospel is going to advance, the next partnerships that we're going to make with one another so that we can make it happen, then all of a sudden our coming together makes sense. And when we come together with that strategy in mind, then all of a sudden what happens is it breeds health. And out of the center of that health, it becomes a drawing force to the greater evangelical community. And they say, we want to help you in taking that hill with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And pretty soon we begin to understand that the body of Christ... The Church of the Living God carries many affiliations, many connections. Any of you guys watch NASCAR? Okay, all three of you, okay? We're obviously we're in the Northwest, all right? But my good friend from New Jersey here was the first to get his hand up, all right? Yeah. If you think of the church of God as a NASCAR, what is the one thing you notice about every NASCAR? The stickers that are on the car, right? In other words, you've got the oil company, the gas company, the tire company, and right in the center of the hood and on top is what? The sponsor, right? This car is a NAPA car or a, a, you know, a what? Yeah, okay. In other words, the sponsor's right on the car, okay? What's common around the track? They're all what? They're all cars. What's common amongst us in this room? We're all churches. But the question is, is how are we going to run? And you know what? There are things that we need to connect with to help us run better. We need to understand that there are those things out there, there are those people, there are those organizations that do it better than us. And we need to embrace what God has developed and done in and through them. We need to test it to make sure it fits within our doctrinal sideboards. But we need to get on mission. How are we going to discern what stickers we're going to put on our car? Probably better get a council together. Probably better debate it. Probably better be careful before you slap that sticker on your car. Because once you get that... St- have you ever tried to take a sticker off your car after your kids have put it on? Don't put that on! Gosh, yes, that's not going to come off the paint. You see, because you know once you put that sticker on, it's probably there till you sell the car. Okay? Be careful what stickers you put on your car. But just because that may be difficult doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. How are we going to discern that? We've got to come together. Because it's bigger than us, amen? But you can't just embrace anything, can you? So this morning, when you take the skeleton, the gospel, the church, and the mission, When you take your family, your church, us as a covenant community of churches, and the universal church of the living God, and when you take those things that we need to hold in tension so that we might spur one another on to love and good deeds, then maybe it really is important that we not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the habit of some, but maybe we should gather together to encourage each other doctrinally and missionally for the sake of the gospel. That's our aim in serving you through the office at CB Northwest, is to help you be that kind of a constituency of churches. Let's pray. Father, this morning, uh, we have uh, pushed hard to cover a lot of material in a short period of time. And we just realized that these are important truths. We thank you that your Bible speaks not just to me, not just to my church, not just to us as CB churches, but to the whole church. And Lord, we would be amiss to not apply your Bible to our own home, to our own church, and to us as conservative Baptist churches, but also to apply it beyond us as we embrace one another and we run together. So Lord, until we see the checkered flag, I trust that you would keep us in our lane, and I trust that you would bring to us what we need so that we might be the the kind of churches that could reproduce churches and take ground that was once held by Satan. So Lord, as we labor together, may you unify us more and more around the truths of your word, doctrine, and around the truth of the mission to go and make disciples of all nations. And we will thank you and praise you